Hey everyone, I'm Justin Kinney, and I'm excited to be with you guys for another episode of Nutshell Politics. Now, on the last episode, we went into some current events, talking about what was happening with negotiations that are taking place between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. And so today I wanted to do kind of a special episode where we just dive into some of the background of who of who Kim Jong-un is, uh, where he came from, and a little bit about his family as well. So this is going to be a little different from other episodes where I focus more on issues or events or conflicts. Uh, instead, we're going to do a little bit more of a psychological look at a person, or, or I should say the Kim family as a whole. Uh, now, Kim Jong-un is one of the most prominent world leaders today. Despite being from a relatively small country, uh, North Korea's land area is only in about the top 100 in the world by a little bit. And so it's, it's relatively small. You wouldn't think a country like that would have such power that it does. But Kim Jong-un manages to really command the world's attention. And this is partially due to a couple of reasons. First and foremost is probably his nation's ownership of nuclear weapons. We touched on this last time, but you know this makes him only one of nine countries in the world to possess such destructive weaponry, uh, which puts it on a level alongside the likes of the United States, China, Russia, you know, etc. Uh, also, Kim Jong Un kind of has a bit of a reputation around the world. He's known for being very brutal, very cruel. Uh, this country has some of the worst human rights violations on record in the world. And also Kim Jong-un has a bit of a reputation for being a little unstable at times, uh, maybe irrational. And we'll talk about why that is and, and what that might mean going forward. But let's, let's dive into Kim Jong-un specifically. So Kim Jong-un is officially the supreme leader of the country of North Korea. Uh, he is considered the chairman of the Workers' Party of Korea, among several other titles. Depending on who you ask, he is anywhere from about 34 to 36 years old. But he's been in power since 2011, which means he took power around the age of 27 to 29. And this is fairly young. It makes him a little unique on the world stage you know, to run an entire country before he even hits the age of 30. And further, this also makes him the only North Korean leader to have ever been born after the country's founding in the 1940s, which means that he was both born and raised under the regime. Now, before I get too far into Kim Jong-un, though, I think it's important to, to back up and examine the entirety of the Kim family dynasty. Uh, this is a three-generation lineage of leadership in the country. They're the only family who has ever held power there, which makes them kind of like a monarchy in the sense of you know the lineage and leadership kind of being passed down from father to son. Now, the country is frequently referred to as being communist, and this is due to their history and their relationship with the Soviet Union and China, but it, communist isn't really a great descriptor of the country. There are some communist-like elements, but it's a mistake to really treat this country as communist. By the same token, they refer to themselves as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Sometimes you'll hear them called the DPRK. But I think it's pretty obvious that they are neither democratic nor a republic. As a matter of fact, the government in North Korea is pretty unique in the world. As I mentioned, they're kind of like a monarchy. Uh, they have some communist-like elements. There's their one-man hereditary autocracy, uh, kind of like a royal family. And it's all built around this official ideology that they have in North Korea called Juche. Now, Juche is spelled J-U-C-H-E. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it pronounced Juche. Uh, but either way, frequently you'll see this referred to in documents about North Korea. 
it is a word that is often not even translated. When you'll see it written out, they just call it juche. But when you do translate it, it's a North Korean word that essentially translates to self-reliance or independence, which I, I always felt was kind of an appropriate word for a country that operates very self-reliantly in a very solitary manner in the world. They don't have many friends, many alliances, and they're frequently on the world stage kind of by themselves, which, as we talked about in the last episode, is partly why they pursue nuclear weapons. Now, just to go all the way back to their founding, the original Kim was a man named Kim Il-sung, and he took control in the area after World War II. Prior to this time period, the peninsula was actually ruled by Japan. For those of you who aren't really up on your Asian history, Japan was what's considered a regional hegemon prior to World War II, which means that they were the ruling power in Asia. They were the strongest country by far. They had a lot of power and influence across that part of the world. But World War II ended a lot of the power and influence that Japan had. They overreached a little bit, thought they were stronger than they were, bombed Pearl Harbor, the U.S. responded, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, we're all familiar with this story. And Japan lost a lot of their power, a lot of their influence, a lot of their territory, including the Korean Peninsula. Now, the U.S. was not the only ones fighting against the, the Japanese in, in the Pacific. And one of these other groups was a band of resistance fighters on that peninsula. Now, Kim Il-sung was actually one of the leaders of that resistance. Now, he was actually raised in a Christian home. It's kind of an interesting backstory to him. His, his grandfather, I should say, was a minister. But more notably for his rise to power, Kim Il-sung became a communist guerrilla leader in the area, and he fought in the resistance against the Japanese forces. And this is really important because whenever you see a lot of those images from North Korea of the people, you know, weeping and sobbing and paying homage to their leaders, you know, it's frequently accompanied by an explanation that the people are required to do this, you know, that they're threatened under penalty of torture or death uh, if they don't cry and show remorse for their leaders who have passed on. And that is all true. They are required to do this. They can be you know, put to death if they, are, if they don't show enough emotion. But underlying a lot of this, there is some measure of real affection for Kim Il-sung, the original leader of North Korea. And the reason for this is due to his relationship to that resistance force. However, what began as some genuine affection for one of the founders of their country has been spun wildly out of control. As when Kim Il-sung took power, he used this ideology of Juche to form a web around him, like a cult of personality around both himself and his family. And this eventually became an official doctrine and ultimately actually becomes some of the basis surrounding the idea today that the Kim dynasty is made up of you know, this infallible godlike beings. This, this cult of personality started shortly after he took power, and it's, it's what really helped him establish very strong control of the country. And he quickly extends that to his family as well. And as I mentioned, this cult has grown wildly since that founding. And at the moment, it demands essentially total subjugation to the Kims. Uh, it's actually been, in, as I said, enshrined into the North Korean constitution to the point where Kim Il-sung and his son and grandson, the next two leaders, are actually taught in classrooms as being like saviors of the people. You know, these borderline perfect individuals surrounded by all kinds of apocryphal stories and legends. 
uh, many of which I'm, pro I'm sure you've heard of. I wanted to just quickly touch on a couple of them, because propaganda reports it have at times claimed all kinds of things, that Kim Jong-il could walk and talk before he was six months old, uh, that he could control the weather with his mood like he was some sort of North Korean version of Storm from the X-Men, uh, that he invented the hamburger. This is one of my favorites. He apparently invented the hamburger in North Korea. It didn't exist before him. Uh, they've also claimed that he was this expert athlete, that he you know, bowled a perfect 300 the first time he ever went bowling, that he holds the world record in golf. Uh, he apparently shot a 34 on 18 holes. Apparently that included 11 holes in one. You know, further, it's claimed that he had this almost divine-like connection to nature, where nature itself mourned his death, that he was born under a double rainbow, all kinds of these wild, wild stories around the Kim family specifically. All, all of these stories are essentially propaganda built to lift up the, this family as as kind of messiah-like creatures, you know, almost gods. Now, obviously, all of those are legends and tall tales, propaganda, because in reality, Kim Jong-il was probably about four or five years old when his father gained control of North Korea. Now, it is true, very little is known about his early life, or his early education, because he had almost no public profile prior to 1980. It is thought he received some education as a child in Europe, but around the year 1980, we start to see him appear on the world stage. He begins to emerge as the heir apparent to his father. He takes on the title Dear Leader, you've probably heard that from the news, and he begins to build his own personality cult. Uh, he starts taking on more and more positions of power, positions of prominence in the country, so that when his father dies in 1994, about a decade and a half later, he is prepared to take over power. Now, it should be noted that although he was the undisputed heir, he didn't take full power for about three years, which sounds like a long time, but you have to understand, this was the first time that the country of North Korea had ever transitioned power from one leader to another. And so it just took them a little bit of time to work out all those kinks to figure out how it's supposed to fit together. But once he did take power, full power, he became brutal quite quickly, uh, much, much like his father. Kim Jong-il in particular was known for being fairly paranoid. He, you know, he saw everyone as this potential enemy, whether it's his own staff, his own people, the citizens of the country, uh, frequently members of his own family. And this paranoia takes really deep root in, inside him. To the point where he actually starts to build up a almost like a, an elite squadron of military forces designed solely to protect him. He builds up this this military force that's fairly large around himself specifically. But this paranoia also carries over into broader public policy issues where he starts to institute what he's probably most famous for from a policy perspective, and that is his military first policy. Now, his military first policy was designed, at least he claimed, to strengthen North Korea, to build them on the world stage as a power to be reckoned with from a, a strictly physical standpoint, physical military strength and power. So this emphasized the army. He distributed resources to the army and to the military. But what happened here is natural resources are not particularly plentiful in North Korea. And so what he did is he took these resources that were already fairly scarce and distributed them away from the people to serve military units first. And this is where he gets a lot of his reputation as being so cruel because under this policy, the people really begin to starve. Now, North Korea already had a reputation for being cruel. His, his father was not known for being the nicest guy in the world. 
there's a lot of purges and executions that took place. But a lot of times when we refer to that country and talk about the starving people of North Korea, we're frequently referencing this time period where the people really do begin to starve because the all of the resources that they would normally have had are being shunted away from them and to support the military first and foremost. All of this kind of leads to today and the current leader, Kim Jong-un. And this is where I, I really want to focus today because this is what's relevant for our policies going forward. You know, Kim Jong-un is the grandson of the original North Korean dictator. He is the son of the second one, uh, Kim Jong-il. And he is, of note, the first leader to have been born under the regime and after the country's founding. Now, this is particularly important because you have to understand when you have somebody who is essentially raised in a family where he is taught that he is a god among men, that he has never known anything different. And while this is certainly no excuse for the cruelty and horrific acts that take place under him, there is an element here that we have to take into consideration that this is essentially a very, very deep level of of psychosis, almost a, a brainwashing that he has been undergoing since birth. And so when we try to go in and negotiate with him and talk talk to him from like a, a Western perspective that you know, so many of us here in the United States have grown up under, it's not going to work because he comes from a very different ideology, a very different psychology than most people. Even when you look at, say, a country like the United Kingdom, where they have a monarchy and a royal family, and you have people who were kind of born and raised as, as royals, that's still not the same thing because they are not viewed as, as godlike creatures. They don't hold ex, you know, supreme executive power in the way that the Kim family does. They don't engage in this brutality and cruelty. And so the psychology of dealing with a member of the Kim family who has been raised to believe this about himself is very different than how we deal with other countries around the world. Now, just for a little bit of background on him, like his father, you know, there's also very little known about his early life, about his education. It's reported that he was very hot-tempered and arrogant as a young man and from a few defectors, I think from a nurse that, that took care of him when he was a child. And it's thought he may have been educated in the West, again, like his father, under a pseudonym probably to protect him. This was maybe Switzerland. We don't really know for sure. Any reports we do have about this time period mostly come from former classmates who claim that they recognized him. But these are really few and far between. They're very scarce, a little bit sketchy, so we take them with a grain of salt. But most of these reports agree that he was fairly well integrated into the schools, though shy, but not really much more is known. Now, there is one other element of his psychology that I think is really important in understanding how to deal with him politically, and that is that Kim Jong-un was never actually meant to become the leader of North Korea. In fact, he was third on the depth chart when he was born. He had two older siblings that should have taken power over him. Uh, the first was an older half-brother by the name of Kim Jong-nam. Uh, you may recognize his name. Uh, he is the same half-brother that was killed in 2017. Uh, he supposedly assassinated on orders of Kim Jong-un. And if you guys remember the story, but essentially what happened is he was in the airport in Malaysia. Uh, a couple women came running up to him, splashed something in his face. Uh, they claimed it was later because of a, a game show or something. But what was splashed in his face had been spiked with a VX nerve agent, and he quickly died. 
But this obviously took place well after Kim Jong-un had taken power. Earlier in life, Kim Jong-nam had actually been the heir apparent to take over the, the throne. But the story goes, he lost the favor of his father about 20 years ago now. And there's all kinds of rumors around it. The main story that, that is mostly told is that he attempted to sneak out of the country at one point on a fake passport. He was much more interested in the West and kind of Western ideas and Western culture. And so the story goes that he was trying to visit, of all places, Tokyo Disneyland. And so this feels like a fairly small and significant thing, kind of funny actually, but it was enough to incur his father's wrath. And so Kim Jong-il exiled Kim Jong-nam from the country, sent him to China. Uh, the mantle of leadership, the heir apparency that was supposed to fall to him was taken away and passed down the line. Or so the story goes. There are some rumors that this may have been just an excuse. This son was already kind of out of favor before this. Uh, he was pushing his father to ad adopt some market reforms, a few very small kind of capitalistic practices like private property and those sorts of things. Remember, I mentioned that he has some interest in kind of Western ideas and Western culture. So it's thought he may have already been out of favor and the Tokyo Disney thing was just the last straw or an excuse that was used. But either way, that mantle of leadership was taken away from him and passed down. Now, interestingly though, this brother relationship that we often attribute to these two was very tenuous and not at all like we tend to think of brothers interacting. Because as I mentioned, they were considered half-brothers, which means they had different mothers. We know that Kim Jong-il had at least two wives and at least three mis mistresses. And the way he handled all of these different women was that he kept them isolated from each other, uh, frequently living in entirely different villas, which means that it's quite possible that Kim Jong-un never even met his half-brother Kim Jong-nam. So while they were technically half-brothers, sharing the same father, they may never have ever crossed paths in their whole lives. They were sons of different mistresses. Actually, ne neither one was a son of a wife. They were both sons of different mistresses. And so they were kept living separate from each other. Which means that any sort of brother relationship that we tend to think of never developed. And Kim Jong-un probably only saw his half-brother as a potential threat to the throne. Now, you'll notice I mentioned that Kim Jong-un was actually third in line. There is another brother that was in line ahead of him, an old, another older brother, Kim Jong-chul. He w was technically in line. He is the older brother. He is from the same mistress as Kim Jong-un, so they are full brothers. But he was passed over by the Kim family very early on. Kim Jong-il basically saw Kim Jong-chul as not being ruthless enough, not being mean enough, not being capable enough of running the country and he basically thought Kim Jong-un was, was the more ruthless son and the most likely to survive a brutal succession, keep the family in power, keep the country running, that sort of thing. So despite Kim Jong-chul technically being the older brother, it's thought he was never really a true candidate for taking over when Kim Jong-il died. And there are plenty of reports that suggest Kim Jong-un actually did have the favor of his father from an early age due to similar personalities. They actually looked fairly alike. And so this, this favor may have uh, aided him in his rise up that depth chart. But what this means is that it wasn't until 2009 that Kim Jong-un officially became the named successor to his father, fairly late in the process. And this is when he also starts to appear in the various political lists within the country. And this was actually just in time because his father died about two years later, December of 2011. 
And this was fairly unexpected. Uh, Kim Jong-un had barely begun his training to take over, and most political experts or political analysts looking at this situation predicted that the whole system was about to collapse. They didn't think that he had what it took to run the country. Again, he was quite young. Uh, he had not been training. He was not even named the heir until a couple, couple years earlier, where his father had like a decade and a half of training. He only had about two years. But Kim Jong-un rose, took his father's place, and surprised a lot of people that way. And a few months after his father died, the title gets officially passed down to him as well. Now, Kim Jong-un's leadership, though, has marked several changes. Uh, there's a handful of domestic policies, you know, an economic focus on agriculture uh, to help boost the economy. He reintroduced televised speeches. Uh, his father had gotten rid of those. He didn't like televised speeches. But the two main political policies that you probably are most familiar with with Kim Jong-un are some of his political purges and executions and his brutality, and then the nuclear program. So I'm going to touch on both of those in, in succession. Uh, the first, the purging, Kim Jong-un has engaged in some of the biggest purges since his grandfather's regime, quickly surpassing his father. This is probably how he managed to surprise everyone and take power, was his ruthlessness. And this included you know, close to 150 military and government officials, several family members, including uncles, nephews, eventually his, his half-brother Kim Jong-nam, as I mentioned, and a couple hundred more were thrown in prison, removed from power. He basically brutally removed anyone he thought posed any threat. There's a fairly famous photo of him walking alongside the car that's carrying his father's body. I believe it's either to or from the funeral. And... You look at several other members around the car. I think there's a couple family members, some some big government officials, and you can pretty much go around the car and say, "Oh, he's dead. He was killed. He's missing. Uh, this guy's totally vanished. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, he was thrown in the concentration camp." And so Kim Jong Un was very, very ruthless and brutal. Essentially, he he took anybody he thought was a threat and replaced them with someone who was more loyal to him, uh, frequently much younger as well, uh, including of note his sister. Kim Yo-jong, uh, who is kind of a, an unusual character in and of herself. Uh, she is the one that actually attended the Olympics back in February, if you were paying attention there. It was the first time a member of the Kim family had ever, had ever attended the Olympics. Uh, and she's, a, she's actually fairly high up. She was quite young. I believe she's only about 30 now and is a member of the Politburo in North Korea, which is essentially their version of the cabinet. Beyond these executions and purges, too, uh, Kim has quickly built a reputation for himself as being one of the more egregious violators of human rights in the world. If you've never read the United Nations report from 2014 about what's going on in North Korea, some of the various crimes against humanity, uh, you really should go take a look at it. It's a very eye-opening. Uh, I'm going to read a couple quotes that I think are, are particularly um, heart-wrenching. Uh, so let me just read a couple of these. Um, Inmates are imprisoned, usually for life, in camps without ever having been brought before a judge. Uh, they have never been charged, convicted, or sentenced. Many are incarcerated based solely on the principle of guilt by family association. Some are even born prisoners. The, the living conditions in the political prison camps are calculated to bring about mass deaths. Forced to carry out grueling labor, inmates are provided food rations that are so insufficient that many inmates starve to death. The prisoners are often so weakened from malnourishment and disease that they are literally worked to death. Rape is regularly committed in political prison camps of the DPRK. Uh, they are a product of the environment of the prison camps and the impunity generally enjoyed by camp officials. 
Hundreds of thousands of inmates have been exterminated in political prison camps and other places over a span of more than five decades. This raises the question of whether genocide or an international crime akin to it has been committed. Uh, the imposition of forced abortions on female inmates who become pregnant without authorization uh, not only results in immediate physical harm, it also interferes with the victim's reproductive rights and causes severe emotional suffering. There is an almost complete denial of the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion, as well as of rights to freedom of opinion, expression, information, and association. The state operates an all-encompassing indoctrination machine that takes root from childhood. During the period of famine, ideological indoctrination was used in order to maintain the regime. The police systematically employ violence and punishments that amount to gross human rights violations in order to create a climate of fear that preempts any challenge to the current system of government. And it goes on and on. Uh, frequently, we reduce Kim Jong-un to some sort of cartoonish character uh, or a power-hungry dictator that just happens to have nuclear weapons, but that's wildly inaccurate and dangerous. Uh, his regime, under him as well as his predecessors, created situations that really put it on par with what took place during the Holocaust with the Nazis in Germany and some truly, truly horrible things. Now, Kim Jong-un, though, does have some reported odd quirks that we may use to, to communicate with him and to negotiate with him. I just want to touch on a few of those as to where they come from and why. Uh, the first one is his obsession with basketball. This is actually a pretty interesting story that goes back to his father, who was obsessed with basketball, and in particular the Chicago Bulls. Uh, the story goes he actually had videotapes of almost every Michael Jordan game. Uh, he repeatedly invited Michael Jordan to come to North Korea uh, to play exhibition games there, but obviously my, Michael Jordan always said no. But this explains a lot of why a man like Dennis Rodman, who, let's be honest, has, real, has no real business being a diplomat of any sort, but he manages to hold a certain level of sway over Kim Jong-un because of his association with the Bulls and Michael Jordan. Uh, if you go back to Madeleine Albright's visit to North Korea years and years back, she brought with her a gift for Kim Jong-il at the time, the father, and the gift was a basketball that had been signed by Michael Jordan. And the story goes, Kim Jong-il was so thrilled and pleased with this gift of a Michael Jordan signed basketball that he promptly built an entire museum simply to house the ball. Now, I believe the museum has added other things since then, but the idea here is that that obsession with Jordan and the Bulls has carried over from father to son, and this is why a guy like Dennis Rodman is being utilized in the way that he is. But his interest in basketball and the West and Rodman goes beyond just that. Uh, he actually has shown a willingness to engage with Western culture at levels that neither his father nor his grandfather ever did. A few years back, he actually publicly attended a concert by an all-female pop music group in North Korea uh, called the Morongbong Band. Uh, this is particularly notable because that band is known for playing a lot of Western music, using a lot of Western images in their performances, from Disney characters to Frank Sinatra, even a little bit of country music. And this concert was a public appearance by the leader of North Korea at a Western-style event. Uh, very interesting. It was also the first time, this concert was the first time a North Korean leader has ever publicly acknowledged their spouse. Very fascinating as to why that might be. Neither his father nor his grandfather ever publicly appeared with their spouse 
But Kim Jong-un now has. He publicly acknowledged her. He brought his wife to that event for her first ever public appearance. And even beyond that, too, he seems to have shown a greater willingness or, or a greater interest, maybe, in engaging with and interacting with the people of his country. However, we shouldn't take some of these Western interests and some of these events to mean anything truly significant until we see more. It's quite possible, and actually I would argue quite probable, that he is using a lot of this to to distract as essentially a ploy to distract from other elements of his regime from the gross human rights violations that that are still still taking place there to this day uh, we all know the story of Otto warm beer i mean that was just a year ago as these human rights violations have not stopped despite some of his interest in more western ideas his interest in talking with trump in releasing some of the other prisoners, in talking with the South Korean President Moon. These things are steps. I'm not going to deny that. But at best, they are baby steps. And at worst, they may be a scheme to distract from a lot worse things going on. Uh, It's something that we really need to be very careful about as Trump meets with him. I talked about this last time, but I think he really needs to go in with his eyes wide open to understand that these human rights violations, crimes against humanity, are still ongoing in North Korea right now. And that these kind of baby steps and these baby concessions that he's made, while good, I'm thrilled that our prisoners were released. And talks of denuclearization are promising. But we have to understand that, A, this is not the end goal with this country. There's a lot of other things going on there that need to be dealt with. And B, North Korea has promised to denuclearize like seven or eight times in the past, and it hasn't happened. Kim Jong-un has seemed to be a little bit more chatty than normal. He has left the country for the first time uh, since he was at least a kid, going to China, going to South Korea, now talking with Trump in Singapore. These are things that have never happened before. And I'm really eager to to follow them going forward and just see what's going to happen here. But Kim Jong-un is an unusual person in the world. He has a, an unusual, a unique background. He has a unique psychology that we need to be very aware of going forward into any negotiations and deals so that this isn't just rhetoric. So it actually leads to something a little bit more substantial down the road. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and end the episode. We're running out of time. So if you're interested in learning more and talking to me or in supporting this podcast, hit me up on Twitter, on Facebook, shoot me an email, and I look forward to talking to you guys. Uh, So until next time, I'm Justin Kinney. This is Nutshell Politics, and thanks for listening.